chromosomes. Little strands of nucleic acids and proteins are the fundamental genetic instructions that tell us who we are at birth. Most people are born with 46 chromosomes, but each year in the United States, about 6,000 people are born with an extra chromosome, making them a person with Down syndrome. If you've ever encountered someone with Down syndrome, you know that they are some of the kindest, most joyful people you will ever meet. They truly have something extra. My name is Lisa Nichols, and I have spent the last 24 years as both the CEO of Technology Partners and as the mother to Allie. Allie has something extra in every sense of the word. I have been blessed to be by her side as she impacts everyone she meets. Through these two important roles as CEO and mother to Allie, I have witnessed countless life lessons that have fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. While you may not have an extra chromosome, every leader has something extra that defines who you are. Join me as I explore the something extra in leaders from all walks of life and discover how that difference in each of them has made a difference in their companies, their families, their communities, and in themselves. I'm excited to have Donish Nagda on the show today. Donish is the founder and CEO of Resilient, building robots that allow doctors to make house calls from a distance. Donish, I am so excited to have you in the studio today. You and I met at an HBA. You were actually a panelist, but there was so much of you. I'm like going, one little podcast does not contain Donish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to have you here today. Uh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, you've got just such an interesting story. So I want you to tell our listeners, just go back from the beginning mm-hmm. when you were just a little baby mm-hmm. <laughs> and talk about that. You know, I was the youngest of three, grew up in Chicago and Dubai. My father had built a large business in Dubai. And so, you know, we would always be traveling back and forth. And I modeled a lot after my sister who was the first woman to ever get into the undergrad and master's program at Illinois, the combined program. She finished that five-year program in three and a half years with, you know, a nearly 4.0 GPA. Uh, She then went to Carnegie Mellon (laughs) to do human-computer interaction (laughs) and now is at Google. So she was a big, big You had some big shoes to follow. Oh, you have no idea. (laughs) Uh, You know, and uh, my brother went to Babson for entrepreneurship and uh, then worked at Deloitte and was just incredibly successful there and was a great father. And and that, you know, these are things that you kind of grow up with. But the person that I really, really, really tried to model myself after is my father. And uh, his health has actually been a large influence on my life. So, you know, when I, I started college at a very young age, I was studying electrical engineering. I had the unibrow, the thick glasses. Uh, I was the pocket liter- protector. That's right, the pocket protector. Really, you know, I was living the dream. Uh, <laughs> I'd actually gone through my my she's all that moment where you know the glasses came off, the unibrow went away. Uh, my brother really helped me kind of look more normal, and I joined frat and the whole deal. <laughs> and uh, I was loving life as a seventeen year old sophomore, and then dad got sick, and so I had to leave college, take care of the family business in Dubai. I uh, ran that business for three years, nearly into the ground actually. And you were seventeen years old. I was old. seventeen years old. Well, no plus wonder employees. you almost ran it. <laughs> the ground. What did you know at 17? I didn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, but when you're 17, you're invincible. And that's luck, honestly, in that situation. You know, September 11th happened. We lost $16 million in one day. So, you know, when you are in the textiles business, my father had built the largest textile firm in the Middle East. And when you're in the textiles business, you get paid when product is delivered. You insure it, but 
remember, September 11th was not a natural disaster. So mm-hmm. insurance didn't cover it. So we lost $16 million in one day. September 12th, that is a heart attack and a stroke. September 13th, I'm in Dubai. You know, and Dubai is very different than the rest of the world, where business is still family-oriented. They have to know you. They have to know your grandfather. They have to know your grandfather's grandfather. <laughs> it's a very uh, weird place in that way, but, you know, it's about trust. That part of the world, there's a lot of money involved. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they need to know that they can trust you because they need, they need to know your family. And so I ran that business nearly into the ground, $30 million by the <laughs> end of the year. <laughs> they brought in McKinsey. They revalued our entire business model. And they said, look, you're not going to be able to compete with China. It was a really big shock. But there's actually more to this. You know, you are already losing these contracts. You are already losing to China. You are already losing to South America. And, you know, we've faced this in the U.S. as well in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. But you've got to reinvent yourself. And what we had, my father was in the 80s, became very well known for automation. So textile automation has been around for years and years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he got all these Japanese engineers to come down. We had 600 employees and 26 factories. If you know factory business, that's a very small number of employees because most of it was automated. So we actually used that to our advantage, and I added things like, you know, AI and other things to really try it. This is in 2000, 2003, by the way. So, like, early versions of AI, okay. right? right? So uh, just inference technologies, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so that's what they used to call it back then. And then, uh, you know, we were making customized specialty materials and textiles. And this tiny little company out of Baltimore called Under Armour uh, yeah. came to us for tiny a pilot. Tiny little company. Well, it was tiny at the time. Was it? Uh, yeah, it was literally, the, we were the first outside mm-hmm. of the U.S. production that they'd ever done. And they said, hey, can we get a pilot here? And I was like, no. But McKinsey had brought them, and they said, look, we know this company. We know what they're doing. There were a few ex-McKinsey people there, and they said, just give them a small pilot. They'll show you. Now, I had just closed 13 factories of the 26 because we had lost so much money. Six months later, I reopened those 13 factories. Six months after that, we added 10 more factories just to get their business. And they went IPO and we exited. We actually sold to Arvin, which is the largest textile firm in the world. Good move. (laughs) Uh, How old was the company? How uh, old was the company when you took over? Okay, 25 years old. The people that were working for me now were those same ones that used to give me lollipops as a kid. I mean, it was was really tough. Talk about change agents. We were talking about that earlier. I had to try to play this role as I shake my fists, but you know, it's a, <laughs> it was a very interesting experience to try to posture and appear like you are supposed to be in, in the lead, but it's much easier when you win. True. Hindsight <laughs> looks beautiful when yes, you win. Yes, it does. Right. And so the key for us was just being 17 years old, I, I felt invincible and I felt like everybody there didn't know what was going on, which was actually correct in this situation, mm-hmm. right? It happened to be correct. I got lucky because they had never dealt with such a huge tectonic shift that happened in, in textiles, which now is happening in every industry, right? Uh, we're seeing it in electronics. Uh, we're seeing it healthcare. in technology and healthcare as well, yeah. You know, what we have seen in the last 30 years in the product space, right? So the ability to ship and for that shipping to be from anywhere has changed everything. That's what kind of has always stuck with me, which is if you can ship services, like you can ship products, that changes everything. And we saw that recently, mm-hmm. right? With mm-hmm. First it started with call centers, then it went to higher and higher labor stuff. And so, you know, hopefully we continue to see that because that does bring down prices. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it takes away jobs. So, you know, I saw that happen at my father's company. And then I, you know, after I left that, I went to work at McKinsey. So I worked at McKinsey for a couple of years. They brought me on, a bunch of MBAs running around. And I'd be like, eh, that, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know. And, and so really kind of being the expert from the textile industry. And I think it's just amazing, though, that your dad was already using automation. I mean, textile, I will say he was not the only one. There's a lot of automation. I mean, textiles, today, they do something called 3D knitting, which literally they can knit a shirt 
completely with different threads, and they're actually embedding electrical threads. They're embedding, I mean, where I see wearables mm-hmm. is going to be in textiles because they're so far ahead. Unfortunately, that's not my business anymore. And right. uh, fortunately, some senses. Uh, I was going to say, I think you're in a good place. Yeah. We'll uh, talk about that. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I did that for a couple of years uh, at McKinsey. But the first year there, again, family, right? So my mom is from Pakistan, Kashmir area, where there was an earthquake in October of 2005. People don't talk about it much, but it's actually one of the largest loss of life in the last 100 years. 73,000 people died. 7.7 Richter earthquake in the heart of the Himalayas. My grandmother was there. She had a spinal cord injury. I wanted to see Nana. I was on, in between clients and uh, very close to my grandmother. And How uh, old were you at this time? Uh, I was 21. So you wanted to go see Nana. I wanted to see Nana, I know. Uh, it sounds a little bit young. But, you know, at the same time, family has been very close. Right. Went to go help out with the earthquake. Thought I was going to be picking up rubble, helping with the relief efforts. But they didn't need me for that. They needed me to translate. Uh, there was just not enough people that spoke English to help the physicians that were out there. And so they transferred me to a medical camp in Kanpur. What was supposed to be a three-week leave ended up being three months. And it was in the middle. I mean, this happened in October. So we were there through Christmas. These docs were there till through Christmas. We were seeing 200 patients a day per doc, which is kind of a crazy number. In the U.S., the average is 20, and our docs are still overwhelmed. No MRIs, no CT scans, people coming in with really tough diseases. And really, it was these Cuban surgeons, trauma surgeons and trauma mm-hmm. physicians that literally could see a patient, examine them, talk to them, and, and know exactly what was going on. It was incredible. I mean, to this day, having gone through all of the stuff that I've gone through in terms of medicine, still have not met such good diagnosticians because mm-hmm. they had to, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't have a choice. Right. Here, it's a, you know, we joke around medicine. It's like CPR is really more airway, breathing, CAT scan. And, you know, <laughs> that's kind of where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, the, the skill of actually listening to the patient, examining the patient, that's gone away. Not for all doctors, but definitely the younger doctors like myself. So, you know, I came back. I wanted to become a doctor after that experience. Well, I was going to say that was kind of your pivot point, wasn't it? Yeah. Because you worked side by side for three months with these doctors. And I was doing doctoring. Like, <laughs> I literally, because <laughs> li- there were not enough people. Right. So, I mean, right. I was doing amputations as a someone who had never touched a patient before. They say in medicine, see one, do one, teach one. It's a very common idiom, I guess. But we really did that. I saw one, then I did, did one, one. <laughs> and then I was teaching someone. Right. I mean, it was kind you know, because you don't have a choice. I you mean, don't have it, right. And I always talk about this, you know, growing up in Chicago as a brown guy, <laughs> it's not unusual to know a lot of docs, right? And I used to make fun of them. I used to say, why would you ever do this? It's the worst financial decision you can ever make. I still believe that, by the way. You don't do something unless you literally cannot help but do it. That's kind of my, my belief. Right. And I think that a lot of people end up doing something different. But that's the key, right? Yeah, and so you were, you were driven for a bigger reason. Yeah, and so came back, finished my undergrad at that point, and you know, of course, another another shift, which was I was really fascinated with startups, to be honest, because you know I saw Under Armour really take off, right? Mm-hmm. And so three other guys and I were sitting down, and we were like, we were really upset about Blackboard. Blackboard was a course management software that we were using at WashU, and I did not like it at all. It was just Dropbox. You know, that's all it was. Mm-hmm. And there was no communication on it. It was still Web 1.0. And we said, what if we could take the interface of Facebook and add that to Blackboard and with course management mm-hmm. and literally help people learn together? And that actually became a right. slogan. Right. That, was that Schoolology? Yeah, Schoolology. Oh, okay. Yeah. There was and the so, origin and the genesis yeah. of Schoolology. And okay. so, you know, and we, what we realized was when you're working with a multi-layered architecture like education or hierarchy like education, you really need to find the people that are most thirsty, right? Like uh, my father always says, he has a great line on this. He's like, you know, you find people that are drowning. You know, what do people that are drowning really need? They don't need a life vest. They don't need a boat. 
they need oxygen. <laughs> so you gotta air. figure out the yes. you gotta figure out what their air is. You gotta figure mm-hmm. out what their oxygen is, and then you can charge them whatever you want, right? Because it's inelastic. That was a great learning lesson. So we said, okay, who in that hierarchy is really struggling? It was the teachers. The teachers were actually the ones that were struggling the most, and it was because they felt isolated. So the social network side actually was was more on the teacher's side. So we mm-hmm. built the first online teacher's lounge, and we went from 30,000 to 3 million users in six months because we built the first online teacher's lounge. And we used that once Took we would have... Like yeah, and once we had crazy. enough teachers in a school, mm-hmm. we would then go to that school and say, hey, your teacher's are already using this. They find value in this. And other schools have adopted this. You're going to lose your teachers to those schools. And, you know, recruiting a teacher is actually quite a pain. Mm-hmm. So now you're finding pain points after right. pain point, and then, you know, it's a cascade effect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today we have 20 so million It's kind of users. a retention tool. Exactly. It was. Mm-hmm. It really was. And, right. you know, students were getting so much value from it because their teachers were using this a lot. Adoption of the service provider is usually the first side to a two-sided network. If you ever look at Airbnb or any of these two-sided networks, you'll always see that they go after it. You have to hack supply before you hack demand. Mm-hmm. We did that quite well. And today we have 20 million users, 130 countries, and we just exited this year. And it was... You I just mean, exited in October, In right? October, yeah, yes. to power school. And yeah. uh, we were very lucky that the people that bought us are actually so committed to education. I mean, Vista Equity Partners, which actually owns power school, the founder just gave everybody at Morehouse debt-free college. I mean, what an incredible thing to do, right? It's and amazing. so, so when we saw that, we felt like, okay, they're aligned with us. Mm-hmm. I don't find myself to be very involved with things that don't have a mission, and mm-hmm. our, you know, everybody's got to be super passionate about it. So that's kind of uh, the Schoology story. And I was there for three to four years, uh, and then realized I still wanted to become a doctor. So I came back, finished my MD, MBA from Penn and Workman, and then came to WashU. Right. So I want to dive into that because I want to talk about you being a doctor. Yeah. But we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Donesh. As a business leader, you know that keeping a solid first impression with your potential clients, customers, and talent is vital to reaching your organization's goals. If you haven't optimized your website, or if you don't even have a website, you're missing an opportunity to shape your first impression so that it shows your brand in the best possible light. If you're thinking about revolutionizing your website, let's talk. Our team at Technology Partners is ready to help you reshape your online presence. Go to tpi.co slash websites and start your journey today. So, Donesh, you came back and you became a doctor. Yeah. So talk to us about that experience. And well, it, it and was, it kind of is a great segue into what you're doing today. Yeah, you know, it was kind of funny because, you know, like I was saying, I just never thought I would become a doctor. No doctors in my family, no role models on the medical side. But it was the purpose. And so I came back, became a doctor at Penn, and then came here to become an ear, nose, throat surgeon. People always ask, like, after all of that, you chose ENT. You know, I was a a medical student. It's just a funny story. And if you guys know what an activation is, it's when they put a hearing aid or a cochlear implant in a child who's Mm -hmm. never heard before. And they activated it. And, you know, the mom is, like, in the room, and they're crying but no one was crying more than me in the corner. And the doc was just like, do you need a minute? Uh, you know, like, because uh, I was... This child <laughs> yeah. that had never heard... It was incredible. His mom's voice. What I found fascinating about ear, nose, throat surgery is that they're very technologically advanced. Cochlear implants have been around for 20 years. Uh, robotic surgery has been around for 10 years. My mentor at Penn actually invented robotic surgery for ENT. Then I came to WashU to work with Dr. Hoey, who had invented laser surgery for ENT and was one of the best surgeons in the world from New Zealand originally. And uh, 
came to train under him. And throughout residency, you know, just was very focused on that. Told myself I'll never do a startup again because it's tough. You know, starting something from scratch has yes. got to be the most painstaking. There's no manual. There's no <laughs> manual. You can't do what other people have done because it won't work now. It worked for them. It won't work for you. Right. And no one tells you that. There is no manual, like you said. There's right. no, you know, if you do this, this, and this, you can do that. You know, a doctor, you just do medical school. You work hard. You get to residency. You work hard. You become a doctor. And you keep working hard, <laughs> you know. And uh, But, you know, throughout residency, I just saw all these problems where I was like, okay, I'm going to keep a one-track mind, just be a surgeon, it's okay, you don't have to do anything else. Then my parents were visiting for the weekend, and dad had cardiogenic shock after doing CPR on my own father and getting him to the hospital and him being at Barnes for the better part of our year and seeing that the, the reason why he was he kept getting readmitted was because medications were given incorrectly or information was not really connected. In the last year alone, I have spent 4,900 minutes going back and forth to doctor's appointments with dad. And my mom, who had her own health issues, I spent 2,700 minutes. That doesn't leave much life. And I, I started feeling like as a, I moved them down here, I became a primary caregiver for both of them. And being a doctor and a caregiver has got to be the most frustrating thing in the world because you know it can be better. What I realized, having been a doctor, I couldn't just villainize the doctor like, like a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not perfect, but we're not at fault. Right. right? Like, right. Uh, you know, doctors are suffering just as much. And right. it kind of came to a head for me where one of my best friends in medical school, Daryl Powell, committed suicide because of the workload. You know, what really scares me is 300 doctors killed themselves a few years ago in 2015. Mm-hmm. And this year, over 500 doctors already have. The burnout. The burnout. Mm. It's killing them, mm-hmm. literally. And, mm-hmm. you know, to give you some context, two and a half million patients lost their doctor last year. And we already have a shortage. Yes. And we're already struggling. Yeah, right. We're struggling and the, to find And you know, the, the sad part is, it's easy to say, well, we're losing the good ones. But we really are, actually. Mm-hmm. It's the doctors that really are having this moral injury about providing care and connecting with patients, but then being taken away from that because of the distractions that they're facing. Mm-hmm. Technology has gotten in the way. Everything else that we have done, I mean, what other industry can you find where technology has actually increased workload? where technology has increased costs, right? Healthcare is the only one, actually. Maybe mm-hmm. education, but mm-hmm. te- really healthcare, where over time, the cost of care is increasing, even though technology, quote-unquote, has been added. It's supposed to be helping the situation, but it's taking away time with the patient, which is the most important thing. It's all about the patient anyway. They say, well, we're not capturing the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. We're not capturing anything, right? We're really having the doctor manually enter information in even today or having a scribe, or having somebody else do it for them. Mm-hmm. We're still having nurses do that. We're still having people do that. The spaces don't work for the people. The people are working for the spaces. What we wanted to build was something like a smart clinic that digitally captures that interaction with patients so the doctor doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. So the doctor can actually have that interaction. Mm-hmm. How many of us have sat down? And I, you know, it's funny because I used to do it all the time, right? Most docs did and do. Because if you don't take notes while you're seeing the patient, you're going to be there till like midnight, right? Well, um, and you've got another patient. <laughs> and so... And you're going to forget. You're going to forget. We see right? 30 patients sure. a day. How are we supposed to remember everyone's names, everyone's families, everyone's yes. health and connect it all? But there is a way, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends on Facebook. I'm sure you have more. <laughs> but we, we get to keep up with them, don't we? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. medium that allows you to do that. Other problems, but, you know, allows yes. you to do that. I'm not saying we should bring Facebook to healthcare. Trust me, I don't believe that at all from a privacy and security perspective. But the idea of digitally capturing that doctor-patient interaction so the doctor doesn't have to, 
and then taking that doctor-patient interaction and bringing their presence. So first, we've got to actually restore the presence of the doctor Mm -hmm. in that in-person interaction. Mm -hmm. Then we've got to take that presence and make it ubiquitous where you can get it anywhere. That's how we bridge to a truly digitally enabled healthcare. And that's actually what we're building. So that's kind of where, you know, Resilient kind of came in. And that's where Resilient Yeah, lives. the company. Okay. You know, so I was in a lab with my co-founder, who is a brilliant, brilliant engineer, you know, went to Duke, one of the only black engineers in the PhD program here at Wash U. We met in the lab, Dennis Barber's lab, very well-known, very uh, respected engineer here at Wash U. And he and I kind of always would talk about this because we were both caregivers. Mm-hmm. His mom actually was misdiagnosed for some time and ended up having a mitral valve regurge, which was really, you know, has affected her life. She was in the hospital for weeks because the doctor never really examined her. And we we find this over and over again where doctors are so distracted that they can't actually take care of their patients. And then guess what? Who has the malpractice? The doctor, not the health system. And that's part of the challenges that we have systemically. But how do we help doctors fix healthcare? That was really a big part of, you know, because we he knows a lot of doctors, and his life, his father was a dentist in the Air Force, so he was always traveling, and he would get to know a lot of doctors. And he was, you know, no one writes in an essay to medical school saying, I'm becoming a doctor because I want to make a lot of money. Or I'm becoming a doctor because, uh, not just because it's faux pas, but actually most people become doctors to help because people. Because they want to help people. Right. And so, you know, this whole narrative that, oh, your doctor is just in it for the money, that's BS, because doctors are unhappy even though they're making half a million dollars mm-hmm. a year. Money really doesn't buy happiness. Right, right. Right? And doctors are willing to do the right thing because, you know, when you look at telemedicine, which is essentially on online appointments, doctors are not adopting because without the physical exam, it's unethical. How can I diagnose and treat a patient that has a physical ailment? With remote psychiatry, great. With remote therapy, wonderful. If it's just a visual diagnosis, okay, fine. But when you have to actually lay hands on a patient, how can we do that over virtual care? You know, that's what we wanted to fix was how do you have more presence in the in-person interaction in terms of cognitive and emotional presence? And how do you have more physical presence for remote care? So it came down to presence. So we built sort of an end-to-end platform that that essentially bridges digital health, virtual care, and in-person care, and essentially builds these smart clinics that are all connected all over the country. So you go to a smart clinic and you see your doctor, either in-person or remote, and you can get a conversation. They can actually examine you. They can actually talk to you more than they usually can because they're not worried about documentation. Mm -hmm. All the documentation is done for them on the back end because the clinic is working for the doctor, right? The space is collecting that information, beaming it online securely, and then actually managing that data using AI and humans actually to make sure that that data is cataloged correctly Mm -hmm. and documented correctly. Mm -hmm. And then on the back end, the doctor can actually focus in on actually interacting with the patient, right, on the front end. These clinics, first we start with digitizing that interaction, then we connect these digital access nodes Mm -hmm. to each other. You know, one of our customers, Medivate out in Chicago, they are a clinically integrated network, and they're doing something really special, which is they have a bunch of dermatologists and plastics and ENT and actually even psychotherapy, and you can go to any of their offices for your appointment, your scheduled appointment, and you can see your doctor at that office. Uh, that's incredible. So you, ex- yes. access just completely becomes that's open. Right. So it's your convenience as a patient. You still get that interaction with the doctor. The mm-hmm. doctor's not looking at a computer. They're looking at you, either through a computer or in person. But they're looking at you. They're there. You know, it sounds so crazy. Mm-hmm. If I can be there, right. 100% there, yes. it changes the game. 
you've had experiences with physicians. And, oh, sure we have. <laughs> and they care. I, I really, truly, oh. I mean, at the core of our belief is doctors really do care. They care, and they, they want to help the patient. They want a good outcome for that patient. But they're so. just under so much pressure. I mean, I two-thirds of a doctor's time is going towards non-clinical work. Yeah. And it's only getting worse. Because at the end of the day, the systems, the technology, the spaces, none of that works for the doctor. It works for administration. It works for billing, mm-hmm. but not for the doctor-patient interaction. Right. Once we make these spaces much more intelligent, I think we'll start seeing doctors be happy again. Think about it this way. 78% of doctors are burnt out. It's literally like playing Russian roulette, but the wrong way. <sighs> you know, there are five bullets in a six-bullet chamber, mm-hmm. and that hole is the only one where you can get a doctor that's not burnt out. Now, if you get the burnt-out doctor, which you're more likely to, (laughs) two-thirds of the time, you will have a worse outcome. I would imagine. You know, just think about our own jobs. Yeah, so if you can change this for the doctor, the whole experience, which is what Resilient is trying to do, Greg always says progress equals happiness. So if that doctor really feels like they are making a difference in that patient's life, they are going to be happy. They are going to feel more fulfilled and like, yes, what I'm doing has purpose, I'm doing well, I'm doing my job well. You know, but one of the doctors I talked to that were rolling out resilient there, he literally came up to me and gave me a hug. He's like, you know, you saved my marriage. Because they're mean at home too because of this. <laughs> right? right? I like can... I work so hard to get mm-hmm. through all of this, right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I mean, Daryl is a great example of that. He got to the summit. He was at Harvard. You know, I'm from Penn, so I don't love Harvard. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, he got there. And right. uh, uh, incredible, incredible human being and really cared about his patients. I mean, deeply. But felt depersonalized. Mm-hmm. Felt like he didn't have that relationship with his patients. That's the saddest part. Mm-hmm. Because we go through all of this so that we can help people. Right. And we feel like we're not really and helping. Re- yes, right. So what you're doing now is not the whole picture. Right, Dinesh? I mean, you have a much bigger vision for what you're doing. And it might not be us. It might be Mm -hmm. other people, but it's going to be an ecosystem of people. But Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is, you know, all the developments, really. Internet of Information came, and we saw that change everything. The world's information got organized and connected. Then we saw Internet of Connectivity and Communication Mm -hmm. uh, with social networks and social media Mm -hmm. really liberating where that information was coming from and how people were communicating with each other, you know, the Facebooks and so on. And then we saw Internet of Things, and it has taken some hold, but really mm-hmm. it's limited, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a smart home, you have Siri, you have, maybe my phone will turn on if I say that, but, <laughs> but you know, you have Google Home and Hub and all these IoT devices that are essentially become, the, the fact that I have to get up to turn the light off upsets me sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, but the next big thing that's coming that I think resilience is going to be leading the way, but hopefully helping others do it as well, is this concept of Internet of Skills, where if your car breaks down, let's say it's a Tesla or a car that not everybody can fix, right? You can actually have the mechanic beamed over, and they can use a remote physical presence, a physical Mm -hmm. body like a Mm -hmm. robot, and the mechanic or the car doctor can beam in and actually remotely manipulate tools and fix your car. Mm-hmm. If you need a plumber, you don't have to wait forever for that plumber to show up, set up shop. That same robot could be used by a plumber to fix your plumbing. And our approach of allowing a doctor to do a physical exam remotely, we're literally allowing the doctor to, in real time, manipulate tools with very high precision, just like robotic surgery. Right. In fact, we're using mm-hmm. at our core is one of the robotic surgery platforms from Canova. And so we believe that, especially with 5G coming, this is going to become much easier. I mean, we're already able to do less than 100 milliseconds latency, which is human perceptible Mm -hmm. uh, latency. But when 5G comes, that's going to go to one millisecond. 
So literally in real time, the mm -hmm. world will move. We're there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can move mm -hmm. the remote world. And when that happens, we're going to see something that we have never seen in, health, in the world, which is skilled labor becoming digitized. That internet of skills is going to change everything. Right. That and is so exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's and scary. And you guys are on the cusp. Yeah, it's, it's scary mm -hmm. because if we don't get there, we won't be able to handle the problems that we face today mm -hmm. as a country. Skilled labor is in shortage everywhere, as you it know, is. as you know it really is. well. Obviously. Oh yes, it, yes you know, we do, especially in the physical world. Very good. I think we need a part two of this <laughs> podcast, but I'm going to ask you. This is something extra. What do you believe is a something extra that every leader needs? I think every leader needs to pay attention to the people that they're leading and find and help them find what gives them power and try to identify people ideally that already know their power, how they get their power. And then you just keep feeding it. You keep feeding it. You mm -hmm. keep feeding it. If you're leading a team of super men and women, you won't be giving them kryptonite, right? Like right. you want to be giving them the sun. And so you've got to become the sun for their superpower. And so literally, if you don't know that about every one of your employees that you care about every single day, it's kind of like, a, would you make LeBron James <laughs> clean his own shoes, right? You wouldn't. Of course not. Right? right. Or play with bad shoes, mm -hmm. right? And so... I think a lot of times we forget because we're always thinking about the product, thinking about the service, thinking about the customer. Nothing happens without the human. Without the human that's <laughs> yes. working for you, yes. That, yes. that's working on your mission. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of times the key is to find people that actually get power from different areas. There are people out there that enjoy things that I would never enjoy, which is mm -hmm. writing emails, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or scheduling things or being organized, you know. But there are people that love that stuff. right. And, and when you marry those, I mean, I say that all the time. My EA, I'm calling you out, Jenny. She is the most organized person in the world, but she makes me be able to go so much further exactly. because she's using her superpower. <laughs> and together, you can do so much more and accomplish so much more. So I could not agree with you more. I cannot even tell you how many people have been on this show and have said, someone found something in them or called mm -hmm. something out in them that mm -hmm. they oftentimes didn't even recognize themselves, but they called something out and it changed the trajectory and, of and their life. And I will say, to become a leader, you know, I was with some students from WashU yesterday that were a black engineer uh, student organization at WashU, and I said to them, you need to start building awareness of what gives you joy. If you need to meditate, great. Mm -hmm. Not everybody needs to do that, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's mm -hmm. no easy way to do that. You just got to pay attention. Right. What makes you happy gets you out of bed. My co-founder, Jeff, he's an engineer. He did his PhD in biomedical engineering. He says, you know what gets him out of bed every day? People. And so when he's go. working with people, he wants to be there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like working alone. Right. And it takes it's a, it takes a lot. It's really tough, <laughs> right? as you know. But as we all get older and we get more, quote unquote, wise, you know what wisdom truly is? is understanding yourself and understanding what powers you. I could not agree with you more. Well, that is a perfect way to kind of wrap us up. But I do want to ask you, is there anything that's coming up or anything that you want our listeners to know about? And if so, how can they get involved? We all have relationships with our doctors and our caregivers and our families. And so one thing I would say is if you see your doctor struggling, tell them about Resilient. If you see your doctor unhappy or distracted, tell them about this. Mm -hmm. You could be saving their lives. Mm -hmm. If you care about our mission, go to our website at resilient.io, resilient with a Z, and shoot us a message. Let Very us know. Good. 
Dinesh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun for yeah, me. This has been I exciting. have loved it. It's kind of therapeutic. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. It really is. So thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's show. Something Extra with Lisa Nichols is a Technology Partners production. Copyright Technology Partners, Inc., 2019. For show notes or to reach Lisa, visit tpi.co slash podcast. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen.